Nexus PMG welcomes you to the Bigger Than Us podcast, which we as energy geeks lovingly refer to as the BTU. Bigger Than Us is a podcast that focuses on ideas that will shape the future of our planet and ultimately our existence. We will occasionally lean into energy topics because after all, it's the key to our collective survival, but we'll also explore other ideas and topics that we believe will have an impact that is bigger than us. And now, on to today's show. Hello and welcome to the Bigger Than Us podcast. I'm your host, Raj Daniels, and today I'd like to welcome Preston Bryant to the show. Preston Bryant is a graduate of the SMU Cox School of Business with a BA in Economics specializing in energy. In college, he established an oil and gas company in memory of his late father. Preston furthered his expertise in commodities recovery at the firm LPI, where he uncovered a groundbreaking critical materials processing method called membrane solvent extraction. After obtaining exclusive licensing rights from the Department of Energy's Oak Ridge National Lab, he founded Momentum Technologies with the mission to revolutionize the way metals were recovered by challenging the conventional norms that processing facilities must be large, expensive, and centralized. Preston, how are you doing today? Hi, Raj. Thank you very much for having me on. I'm doing wonderful today. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. And Preston, we were just chatting before I started recording here. And I would say this conversation is about six or seven years in the making. But before I jump into Momentum Technologies, I did come across some interesting reading that I'd like to ask you about. A headline, 20-year-old starts oil company in memory of his father. Can you elaborate, please? Yes, sir, I can. So um, I would say that's a great place for us to jump off. Uh, you know, my, uh, my background, again, originally was in oil and gas, um, even though I'm here today to talk about recycling batteries and clean tech. Uh, my father was a wildcatter, um, which means he went out and developed, you know, uh, oil patches. Um, and he, you know, had his own crews, raised his own, you know, money from investors, and had his own company um, all to himself. So, I grew up in the the energy with the energy bug. Uh, my father was drilling uh, oil and gas uh, wells almost in our backyard, um, and I spent a lot of time on those rigs and a lot of time with my dad. Um, you know, his employees worked out of our house, so. Um, it, it, you know, we, <laughs> the business was all around, um, and my father, um, uh, being a wildcatter meant he was a risk taker, but, um, he was also one of the first people to, um, actually go into horizontal drilling, um, uh, back in the late eighties, early nineties. Um, he was one of the first people actually using that technology to extract, um, more material out of the ground or, or more, <laughs> uh, hydrocarbons out of the ground, uh, more efficiently, um, with the new technology. So, uh, my background, again, was in oil and gas. Um, that's where I was raised in. And um, eventually, uh, when my father passed away my freshman year of college from, from a heart attack, um, I went home that summer. Um, and, you know, I, uh, my brothers and I had taken over his business. Um, and my brothers, you know, they weren't in the oil and gas business and they wanted to wind things down. The Really, the only way you make money in oil and gas is if you keep drilling. And so they wanted to wind the business down, sell the assets, and I wanted to keep drilling. Um, It was something I loved. It was something, you know, my father loved. And um, it just felt 
you know, like it was the right time to keep moving it forward. So um, I called up his investors that summer. Um, I went and found somebody who was willing to uh, give me a loan um, for my first oil and gas lease. And then I went out and uh, raised the capital around it to drill my first oil well, uh, my junior year of college. So that was when I was 20 years old. And uh, that's a little bit of the background of that story. Um, but I will say, actually, to finish off there, uh, drilling that oil and gas well gave me the confidence um, as I kept moving forward um, in my career. You know, even when I took, you know, I had stumbling blocks, I was able always to look back at that point um, and say, look, you know, I did something for my dad. Um, I did something that was, you know, hard um, and it means I can do something greater and it's in me. So I really, I learned a lot um, from that experience. So what are, you mentioned doing things that are hard, stumbling blocks. You know, you sound like you actually said, I believe you had this entrepreneurial bug from your father. I believe I read in the article that, um, and it could be, you know, hyperbole, but hanging your back, he hung your bassinet from, you know, one of the oil derricks when you were a little baby. What are like one or two strong takeaway lessons that you learned from that time period? Um, you know, I, uh, I had this, uh, this, this project and, and I think it was maybe first grade, second grade, and it was called Flat Stanley. And it was this little flat man that we made in class out of sticks and you send it somewhere and, um, and, you know, uh, someone writes a story. So I sent it off to my dad who I didn't live with at the time. Um, and he sent me back pictures of Flat Stanley on the oil and gas rig and had this great, amazing story about this adventure that he had. And, you know, in my mind, it always painted this, you know, amazing kind of, of adventure that oil and gas was. And, and uh, you know, it was always it always played a part uh, somewhere in my life, uh, you know, this story and, and, you know, my dad working. So uh, I would say that's, you know, one takeaway. Uh, is that, you know, it, it played such a large part in, in all as, aspects of my life. And the other one, um, I would say uh, hard work. Um, I was doing two-a-days during football, and my dad wanted me to work on the oil rig uh, during that time because it was still summer. Um, he wanted me to get some, you know, some experience out there. So uh, during the morning, I would go and do my two-a-day, or you know, morning, afternoon, I'd do my two-a-days, and then I'd go and spend the night back out on the rig. Um, and that's how I did, you know, the end of my summer. Um, and so, you know, hard work came with that. It taught me that, you know, uh, you, you know, no matter what you're doing or in your life, you, you know, work still is important. Um, and it, you know, it showed me again, uh, you only get things accomplished with hard work. Well, let's fast forward. The first time we met, it was in the tech community in Dallas. I believe it was 2016 ish. And I remember you came to a local tech meetup, you and I had a conversation and you explained to me this idea about using magnets to extract rare earth materials from, you know, recycled merchandise. And we had a really good conversation. I was quite intrigued. Subsequently, you know, we went our separate ways. I had my own startup and then you took off with Momentum Technologies. But let's go back to that time frame. And, you know, the whole landscape has changed now. Everyone's talking about critical materials, rare earth materials, China, et cetera, et cetera. But how did you, or what prompted you, you know, six, seven years ago to look around that corner, if you will? Yeah. So, um, so you know, while we were drilling one of our oil and gas wells, I, uh, I actually got to climb up to the top of the, the oil derrick and I looked out and, you know, this was 2013. Um, it was during the oil boom, the, the shale boom. And, you know, prices were roaring. There were, you know, six to eight oil rigs around me um, drilling shale wells. We were drilling um, conventional oil. 
Um, but I, I looked around and you could just see how damaging uh, this was for the environment. Um, you could see all, you know, you can see the pockmarks when you fly over, but when you, you know, you're standing up at the top of the rig and all you can see around you is other oil rigs. It, it really puts in perspective how much energy and how much um, environmental damage comes with, you know, this thirst for energy that we have. Um, and so, and, and actually one of the other reasons I started looking around too was um, when you drill an oil well, it's really exciting. Um, you have, you know, 21 days of drilling time. Um, it's, it's a lot of fun um, to be there on the rig, but once you drill an oil well, it's called mailbox money afterward. Um, there's no innovating. You don't really do anything. You just service the oil and gas well, and, and that's it. Um, to me, that wasn't very exciting, um, but not just not exciting. It's not sustainable. Um, and I think that kind of goes back to, you know, with my dad here, or what they say in oil and gas is you got to keep drilling to stay alive as an operator um, because it's, it's, you know, eventually these, these wells, they deplete. Um, and you have to go find a new one and a new one and a new one and raise, keep raising capital. So it's, it's unsustainable, not just from a, an environmental standpoint, but just from a business standpoint. Um, it just seems rather difficult. So uh, I started to look at, you know, what were the new energy sources out there? And, and I just I fell in love um, with the idea that these things called rare earth elements, um, these things called neodymium, praseodymium, dysprosium, terbium. Um, all have these funny names, but they all just a just a touch of them, and all of our electronics allows our electronics to do magical, magical things. Like some of them allow our, our phone to light up, some of them allow our phone to make noise. Um, all kinds of things are possible because of these um, metals. Um, and I just realized that you were heading in this new future where everything's going to be electric, um, and you know these metals are going to touch everything. I I fell in love with the concept um, of rare earth elements, and so. Um, during that time, I, uh, I decided, you know, I would look into uh, investing in a metals company. Um, and I invested in a, a rare earth mining company called U.S. Rare Earths. Um, and we were going to uh, actually take that company public and try to create a mine here in the U.S. Um, during that time, uh, the U.S. government approached us with this uh, technology. They said it worked in, in one of the national labs, um, but it only worked at lab bench scale. So literally the membrane that I had at the time could fit in the palm of my hand. Um, and, but they said, you know, we need somebody to look into commercializing this. And U.S. Rare Earths licensed the technology. And then uh, they tried to go forward and raise capital around building a mine. And the company actually went under. Um, and so I went to the board and said, look, you know, uh, I want to take this recycling technology forward. I think this is really promising. And, and at that time, nobody was interested in critical materials. You know, it was... 2014 uh, commodities were in the, you know, nobody was looking at them. Oil prices were, you know, back down to $20, $25 a barrel. Uh, critical materials and materials and energy in general were not attractive to anyone. So a recycling technology just seemed so far off from everybody's agenda, um, which allowed me an opportunity to look in and say, look, you know, I think um, recycling is going to be very important for these critical materials um, going forward. Um, and there's really, once, you know, you dug in a little bit, you saw that there was no really efficient way to recover these materials. Um, and I'll dig into more about that in a minute once I explain about, you know, our technology, but I'll stop there. No, please keep going. Let's see. So um, originally, again, this technology came from uh, the Critical Materials Institute. This is a um, U.S. Department of Energy uh, program. So they have hubs. They have about seven hubs that all touch on different things from you know, uh, clean tech, you know, from generating electricity to recovering critical materials um, to AI. 
So they, they do many different things at these hubs. Um, we, again, uh, were able to tap into uh, this uh, membrane solvent extraction technology that they had uh, invented. Um, and that's when I, you know, I started the company in 2016, uh, January of 2016, um, we started Momentum. Um, and it was just me. Um, and at the time, I didn't, you know, I didn't have the money to uh, move the ball forward with the project. I, uh, in order to do the next stage at Oak Ridge, um, they required a, a down deposit of one hundred twenty thousand um, dollars. And it wasn't, you know, it was a chicken and egg situation. It was, you know, I, I, I don't have, I don't, I don't really have the money to do this, uh, and we don't really have a, a use case either. So. Um, <laughs> So I, uh, I I went out and um, we actually found a company called Urban Mining Company um, out of Austin. Um, they were going to be one of the first companies that uh, was going to produce magnets here in the United States. Um, and we actually got our first use case with them, um, showing that you know a company that made magnets um, had a waste product they were making, and we could actually use our technology to recover the rare earths um, and hand them back to them. And so. That was really my first, you know, stab at trying to. I've got a technology. I've got a potential use case. Um, let's see what we can do with it without spending too much money. Um, so, and that was really, yeah. Sorry. No, no, fine. So, so we were in the middle of the heyday of you know SaaS technologies, app technologies. Like I said, you and I met at a tech meetup in Dallas. Magnets. You were talking to this <laughs> company from Austin regarding magnets. Mm-hmm. What don't we know about magnets? You know, from our everyday life. Yeah. So um, again, uh, magnets are a very unique product. Um, they're in, you know, they're in just about everything. So your phone has one in the camera that helps it zoom in and out. It has one in the speaker that allows it to uh, play sound. Um, it has one in the taptic engine that makes it vibrate um, and gives you haptic responses. Um, and they're in electric motors. Uh, you know, they provide. They're very uh, specifically rare earth magnets are very very efficient. Um, and you can make them highly temperature resistant, which is important for applications like wind turbines and electric motors. Um, so these rare earth magnets, again, they're in everything. Um, but the problem is, is that they're made of these these rare earths that uh, are mainly mined in China. Um, and that's a really big problem when you're talking about energy security and you're talking about these magnets being in all of our clean technologies. Um, the fact that these come from China is puts us in a very strategically disadvantaged position. Um, as a country from an energy security uh, standpoint. Um, so it was very important to understand that, you know, these critical materials were needed, that uh, there was uh, not an efficient way that, the, you know, the U.S. government or sorry, that the U.S. has to recover these materials. Um, and this technology could have been an efficient way to go about doing that. So magnets, rare earth materials, you mentioned China. Can mm-hmm. you just give us, I think I've heard you previously speak to just what percentage of, and I think you said mine to magnet, um, what percent of the market does China currently own? Yeah, so, you know, uh, I haven't looked at the numbers in a while. Again, um, our, our business is now really, uh, and, and I'll get to this in a minute, it's really focused around batteries. But I, you know, I believe uh, when we were looking at the magnet industry, um, it was something like 90% um, was, you know, uh, due to uh, China. And, you know, whether it's, mined outside of China. You know, there are some mining operations like Linus or um, now there's one in the U.S. uh, since things have, uh, you know, started to heat up. 
Um, there's still only a handful of them outside of China. And most of the time they send that material back over to, to Asia to be processed, even if it is mined outside of China. So, um, you know, there's they've got concentrations in mining, they've got concentrations in processing, and then they've got concentrations of actually magnet manufacturing. Um, there's only a handful of magnet manufacturers outside of China um, and one in Europe, um, a few in Japan. Um, and that's a again, that's a really big problem when you're talking about magnets that need to go into an F-35 fighter jet. Um, and you don't have a lot of options um, for the high end ones except Chinese magnets. Um, so, again, there's a big energy security problem with those minerals being focused from there. Um, and so what we tried to do, um, one of the one of the uh, things that we identified um, uh, we saw that when you make a magnet, you actually have to carve it. Um, and when you carve it, uh, about you know, 10 to 20% of that magnet, and maybe even more, ends up in, in what's called um, uh, you know, slag or, or uh, uh, cuttings. And what we can do is we can take those cuttings and we can put them through our process and actually hand them back rare so that they could use again. And currently, right now, they, they have to ship those slag um, back over to Asia um, they have to box it properly because it can be toxic um, if not handled correctly. Um, and it's a it's a very big logistics issue and it's a cost. So uh, we identified that what if we were able to actually take our technology and put it near these uh, magnet manufacturers, um, we could start processing their waste product. Um, the problem we had, though, is that there are only, again, a handful of manufacturers that make magnets outside of China uh, and the ones that are in Japan it's really cheap for them to ship things over to their next door neighbors. Um, and so there's really wasn't a big opportunity for us there. Um, even though, you know, I spent three to four years trying to figure out, you know, uh, where can we fit this technology in? Um, the market just wasn't there. And we, we even tried to come up um, at the Critical Materials Institute. We, um, we actually built a machine that could punch out magnets from hard drives um, at really high speeds. Um, the problem was, is you would need millions and millions of hard drives that were very similar to each other to even make the business somewhat economically viable. Um, and so that really uh, pushed us in a new direction. Um, with our technology, we not only realized that we could recover um, the, the rare earth elements, which are called the lanthanide series down at the bottom of the periodic table, um, but we could also recover the transition metals. Um, so we could not just put in magnets that had rare earths, but we could also dissolve batteries and run them through our process and pull out the lithium, the nickel, the cobalt, the copper, um, and, and very high purities um, and return that back into the market. And that's really where we found our niche. But it took us years to find that. How many years before you made the, I guess, quote unquote, pivot? Oh, man, I would say we didn't get the license for the battery recycling until 2020. So, you know, we started 2016. So it took us four years, four and a half years to really, you know, dig in, find different opportunities, lose those opportunities, find new ones, um, develop the technology further, and then decide that, you know, we're not going to focus on recycling magnets. We're going to be a battery recycling company. So 2020, so you were four years into your journey. 2020 is also when we had the pandemic and everyone's, mm -hmm. not everyone's, but a large portion of the population's eyes um, or heard the word supply chain, eyes turns to eyes turned towards supply chain issues and some of the challenges of being reliant on perhaps have I heard it mentioned adversarial com countries. Right. And so now you're dealing with batteries and the ability to recycle batteries. We have the EV quote unquote revolution taking off in 2019, 2020. What 
were those tailwinds like for you? Yeah, so um, it's, a, it's a fantastic way to actually structure that. So, um, you know, even when we got our battery recycling license um, in 2020, that uh, we still didn't have a use case. Um, uh, you know, we we hadn't found a sorry a, a customer um, that was really saying, "Hey, you know, we want your technology." And um, it got to the point where uh, 2019, you know, November, I think my 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 mother-in-law was asking me, you know, hey, when you when you move to St. Louis, do you want to start looking for, you know, a job in real estate? You know, we can, <laughs> you know, we, can we can do that for you and, you know, help you help you with that transition. And um, and I said, you know, I, I almost got mad <laughs> um, because, you know, in my mind, I could I could see it. I could see I was almost there. Um, and what was exciting was um, that was November 19, uh, December 1st, um, I actually got into Forbes 30 under 30. Um, and that that really um, uh, drew some attention towards what we were doing. I would say that was uh, a big tipping point for us um, during that time. And not just for us, I would say probably the industry as a whole. Uh, the real uh, talk about electrifying everything has really ramped up in the past few years. Now we have government support, but um, before there was no government support, there wasn't, uh, you know, private support for it. Um, nobody was really looking at this stuff. And now all we, everybody is talking about is batteries and electrification and, and clean tech. And um, it's just, it's a really exciting time. I would say, um, you know, in addition to uh, COVID happening, um, it, it did give me an advantage somewhat. Um, during that time, I was actually able to get in front of a lot of people. Um, when everybody went into lockdown, um, everybody was in front of their computers, in front of their devices. And it actually allowed me to get in front of people um, because they were available and because they weren't doing anything. Um, and I also got into some pitch competitions that really gave me, um, uh, you know, so, uh, some attraction towards our company um, that I probably wouldn't have gotten into if it weren't for COVID. But I think they were they had open spots because, you know, things were, you know, it was COVID and things were low. Um, and they just let me in. And I think that was the rice pitch competition um, that really helped me get into Halliburton Labs ultimately, um, which, is, which is a fantastic accelerator program that we got to be a part of. So um, COVID was an interesting time. But uh, during that time, I was able to you know, uh, get myself some wins, um, which kind of continued to create this momentum um, and where we are now. So where are you now? <laughs> Um, well, in 2020, um, we, sorry, in 2021, um, December of 2021, we raised $20 million um, from a private equity firm out of uh, Dallas called Tailwater, um, and actually their portfolio company, Freestone. Um, and then we also uh, raised capital from a uh, metals group um, out of the UK, um, which is called TechMet. Um, so we've brought investors from the metals and mining world and from the private equity um, oil and gas world. Um, together to really give us these very strong partners um, that we have. So um, the private equity firm is very strong on the operating front. They, you know, they buy operating companies. It's something they do, um, and they've been very, very helpful um, in helping us getting up into operation. Um, and then, as far as our metals investment firm, uh, TechMet, <laughs> um, they actually helped us do a deal uh, with a, a large commodities trading firm called Mercuria. Um, and it's a it's a group they've now they've now done a joint venture called TechMet Mercuria, and they're going to market everything that we produce from our facilities, and that's really exciting for momentum because it it allows us to not have to focus on where is our material going to go, um, you know how are we going to get it to market, 
Um, what are those risks going to be for you know mitigating uh, uh, you know commodities uh, risks and exposure? Um, these things can actually be put on TechMet Mercuria, um, and it's it's been very very helpful partnership for us. So uh, that's where we we were uh, last year. We now we we raised that capital. Um, we built a lab in Dallas, and now we are actually uh, permitting our first facility here in the United States. Um, so very exciting. Um, times at Momentum. Um, we have several customers right now um, that we're talking to, uh, not just in the battery recycling space. So um, in the battery recycling space, we have recyclers and then we have battery manufacturers. And when you make a battery, again, just like the magnet, you have to roll it, cut it, uh, and, and you create waste at every, every step of the process when you make a battery. And so these giga factories that are coming up now, are creating giga waste and they do that for, for the first year. Um, some of these giga factories will produce, uh, I've heard rates, uh, 30% is normal. I've heard rates of 90% in the first year of scrap. Um, as these big giga factories are trying to figure out how to make these batteries, it's not just a, you built it and batteries start, you know, coming out and rolling off the line. Um, so there's a lot, a lot of waste. Um, and that's really, you know, there's going to be an opportunity, a massive opportunity for, for us and for even our competitors out there right now, just due to the amount of waste um, that's being created um, from those battery manufacturing facilities. In addition uh, to the battery manufacturing side, we also are now talking to customers, um, everyone from, you know, companies that are mining uh, product off the mountain. Um, they create what's called mixed hydroxide product. Um, mixed hydroxide product right now has to go over to uh, Asia to be processed into uh, battery grade material. Um, and that supply chain is long, it's expensive, um, uh, lots of carbon emissions um, admitted uh, in the process. So um, right now we're testing our technology to be able to process that mixed hydroxide product where we would move our technology on site um, and process that into high grade material. Um, and in addition to that, we're also talking with um, you know, other companies that create uh, different types of products, everything from needing to convert lithium chloride to lithium uh, hydroxides um, and uh, converting, you know, high cobalt uh, waste streams um, into high cobalt purity product um, to be reused again. So a lot of exciting potential for momentum out there and for this modular sort of uh, business model that we're, you know, uh, pioneering. So two questions. One you may not know the answer to, but I'm just curious. You know, you mentioned these gigafactories that are in development, some that are up and running. What currently happens to their waste? You mentioned 90% waste, but what currently happens to that? Yeah. So um, so right now, um, waste traditionally for lithium-ion batteries uh, gets smelted. Um, so what these companies have to do is they actually have to uh, send their material off. They have to have it calcined where they burn off all of the plastics and all the organics. Uh, and then they put it into um, a smelting uh, furnace. And that smelting furnace is cost, uh, you know, it costs hundreds of millions of dollars to build. Um, they lose lithium in the process um, and they're highly energy intensive. Um, and then once they actually do the pyrometallurgy, they have to take the slag and actually send it over to Europe to be even further processed. Um, so that's that's really what's happening to batteries right now. And the second question, you mentioned you're in the process, I believe, of having a facility permitted. If you can just kind of give us a rough idea of, you know, how big a facility is, footprint. Um, sure. That, that would be wonderful. 
Yeah, so um, I, this kind of goes to the what is the big deal about our technology? So I'm going to uh, go off into that tangent for a second, if you don't mind. Absolutely. Um, so our technology, um, again, you know, this hydrometallurgy, or sorry, this pyrometallurgy of melting everything down is really inefficient, and the market sees that. And so there are people out there trying to co- create large, large hydrometallurgy plants. And what this technology is, is actually comes from the mining industry. Um, and you, you need very consistent feedstock. Um, it, it takes large amounts of capital. Um, and you need, you need large amounts of feedstock to actually be able to feed these beasts. So there are some of our competitors out there right now trying to build several hundred million dollar plants where they ship all of the material that gets created around the world to these central locations to be processed. And what we're doing here at Momentum that differentiates us is uh, our membrane solvent extraction based technology allows us to create a very small footprint. Um, So instead of building a $500 million facility, we build a $5 million facility, um, which is a thousand tons per year instead of 50,000 tons per year um, is a, is a big difference when you're, when you're talking about uh, where this material is coming from. Um, And so our technology allows us to get modular. It allows us to get, uh, closer to the source and eliminate uh, shipping costs. And shipping costs can be uh, 60% um, of the cost of recycling a battery, um, just due to how you have to package it um, and and the actual cost of shipping. Shipping is obviously a big cost. You're able to avoid that. I want to shift to a more practical yet philosophical question for you. You know, you've been ingrained in this industry now for, let's call it seven years. How far behind the eight ball are we from a country perspective when it comes to these precious and rare materials? Sure. So um, I would say we're 15 years behind um, is the, is, you know, the look right now. Um, They've been able to, at least when I say they, I say China um, specifically has been able to, uh, again, they've been able to dominate in the mining part, the processing part of this and the actual scale up of the gigafactories, which, um, by controlling all of those different parts of the supply chain, you know, they're able to uh, give, you know, yields to parts of the businesses that wouldn't, you know, normally give a yield um, and take from other parts of the businesses uh, that, that can. Um, and it's a very interesting model um, that, you know, the only way that we can really fight against it here in the U.S., since it's so entrenched over there, um, is really through, uh, A, the government support we're seeing with the IRA. Um, and B, through uh, entrepreneurship and, and, and new uh, technologies, I, I guess would be the third one. Um, you know, there's a, I, I would say we've now caught on um, as, a, as a nation um, that we're far behind the eight ball. Um, and, and there is a lot of will and there's a lot of development um, being had. Um, but I think, you know, we have to be careful as we move forward um, that we don't create a bunch of, you know, cylindras sort of um, uh, companies in the process um, where these technologies, we build them out and then, you know, there's no use case in the end or the the, the industry doesn't show up the way we thought it would. So um, it's a very uh, delicate balance that we that uh, I think we're playing right now. But I, I think um, everybody realizes we're so far behind that uh, they're doing everything they can um, to get it done. So, And again, philosophical maybe perspective wise, you know, there is this push right now to electrify everything do you think we're running too fast into that we're not running fast enough into it 
Um, you know, we, uh, we have a lot to do in order to, to reach, uh, you know, net negative, uh, carbon emissions, um, by 2050. Um, and we're really far behind, um, and as far as technology innovation goes, um, to, I, I mean, electric vehicles are finally starting to take off, They're, you know, something like four to 6% penetration now, um, but, you know, they're still very expensive cars, um, and they're still not as convenient as as the other cars, uh, as internal combustion engines on the road. So um, there's a lot that has to go on in order to make these things cheap enough and affordable for everyone. And we're not quite there yet. And I'm afraid, I'm afraid we're starting so far back, or, you know, uh, that I, I don't know if we're going to make. Um, but I, I can tell you, we're going to try everything to do it. I sense the optimism in your words. <laughs> so let's look back over the last seven years. What are some of the most valuable lessons that you've learned about yourself on your journey? Um, let's see. I just start with the mo- one of the most valuable lessons. Um, it was taught to me by the, uh, the head of the Critical Materials Institute um, at the time. So when we got this technology, Dr. Alex King, um, was was leading the institute, and he he taught me about um, and us and me specifically about um, the you know the innovation curve um, and and what innovation curves are and how technologies take over um, other incumbent technologies and and then I kind of you know delved from there into um, innovators dilemma um, if you mm-hmm. have any experience with that book I do Clayton um, Clayton, Clayton Christensen. Yes. Um, and I, I would say, you know, that's kind of referred to as the Bible uh, of, of, you know, technology. Um, and it really explains to you how other technologies take over, uh, again, these, these, these older ones that are already in place. And um, something about reading that and connecting the dots to what Alex had said um, and understanding where our technology was in its innovation cycle um, and 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 knowing how long this would take, but but ultimately that it it will be cheaper, it will deliver better uh, value networks for customers compared to what's out there. Um, it it gives you a look into the future. Um, and and I my sister in law one time she asked me you know during the middle of this experience she said you know how do you sleep at night? <laughs> uh, and I said, well, I do very comfortably because um, I have this knowledge uh, about, you know, innovation um, and where our technology is supposed to be. Um, and I have high confidence that, that we're going to reach that point. It's just going to take us a lot of, you know, some time um, to get there. But um, having that understanding um, has really given me a North Star um, and, and given me the confidence that I've had to keep pushing this technology, even when we kind of kept hitting dead ends. So I would say that's one of the most important lessons I've learned. Um, and then I would say uh, my newest important lesson I've learned is, um, uh, you know, I, for so long I was the head of this company and, um, you know, I was the, the industry expert. Um, and it's been hard to let, you know, other individuals come in and, and grow the company in areas where, you know, I just don't have the experience yet. I'm 30 years old. Um, and so recently we've, uh, we've been able to hire, actually, we found a, a CEO out of Houston. Um, his name is Mahesh Konduru, um, who just joined us. Um, and Mahesh has experience um, taking technologies out of the lab um, and actually putting them into industry, building them on skids. Um, and it's in water processing, which is very similar to, you know, uh, technically to what we're doing. 
Um, and it's, you know, I had to let my ego go um, a bit because, you know, you have these dreams when you're building this company, you're going to be the Elon Musk and you're, you're going to be the, you know, the guy. Um, but it, it doesn't have to be that way. Um, and, you know, you find out what skills you're really good at. And, you know, I'm, I'm really good at and I love building things. I'm not good at goal setting every day. It's just not something that I love to do. And it's something that's really important once you start getting past 10 people in a company. Um, you have to start having them aligned on goals. And um, it, it really takes, I think, some experience um, to bring the team together to do it at the pace that our private equity firm would like us to get this technology to market um, and to create the value uh, that I think we ultimately have uh, an idea for for this company. You know, Preston, I really appreciate your candidness and We've spoken to so many companies that are on this commercialization journey, let's call it from lab or bench to steel in the ground. And many times we come across founders who are not as humble as you are and want to hang on and, you know, think they can learn everything. And it just doesn't work out that way. So I really, really appreciate you being willing to share that. Thank you. Thank you. You mentioned the future. Let's cast out that North Star vision, if you will, 10 years from now. So it's, um, what, 2033, Wall Street Journal, Fast Company, <laughs> Forbes, you know, 40 under 40, you know, whatever that looks like to you. If they were to write a headline or perhaps a short paragraph about momentum technologies, what would mm -hmm. you like it to read? So when I, when I think about this technology, I think about wildcatting because we're actually going out and we're exploring uh, new areas where we're trying to develop basically a resource um, and the resource is waste. Um, and we're going to go out to all these modular locations and build these small you know, plants all over the world. Um, and I really just, I, I think there's, there's a lot of synergies there um, in, in being the new wildcatters. But beyond that, um, I'd really like it to say that, you know, the, this company is the best in class processor um, in the world. Uh, I really think uh, we're not just going to be a company that focuses again on, on recycling uh, battery waste and, and magnets. Um, we're going to be a company that can uh, be, a, again, best in class in processing um, and metals processing, which, again, can be everything from recover vanadium um, using our, our technology to uh, niobium to uh, converting again, as I mentioned earlier, uh, lithium chloride to lithium hydroxide to, um, you know, refining metals that come off the mountain. So there's a lot of potential for this technology to be disruptive. Um, and, you know, by 2030, um, I think we'll have uh, shown how many different uh, industries we can go disrupt. You know, when you speak about wildcatters, I imagine that uh, Daniel Day-Lewis, there will be blood and uh, <laughs> we're rephrasing that there will be blood to there will be recycled metals. Right. Well, uh, I, I, I'll, I'll drink them all up. It's from, <laughs> it's, it's, it's from the movie. Yep. I remember that. I drank my milkshake <laughs> and I'll drink yours too. <laughs> Absolutely. So last, last question. And you mentioned, you know, 30 under 30. We have a lot of entrepreneurs listening to this show and across the world too. But if you were to give some advice words of wisdom, recommendations to the audience, what would it be? Words of wisdom to the audience. Um, I would say, you know, keep pushing. Um, you know, it, <laughs> uh, it's, it's really easy to, uh, to not do it when you're young and just say, you know, that's, that's something I'm going to do when I'm older. But I can tell you, um, and I know this might sound funny to some entrepreneurs, but, you know, 
having started when I was 20 and now that I'm 30, um, it's really exciting to be able to look back and just say, look, you know, I've, I've done something like, you know, I, I went out and did it early, um, which means I'm capable of so much more. Um, and I think again, uh, getting started early is what I would say to, to these young entrepreneurs, um, and, and keep pushing at that young, early age. Um, because all of a sudden you, again, you'll look up and you'll be 30 years old and you'll be, you know, asking yourself, well, what, what have I done? Um, and you'll be excited that you did do something or that you have pushed yourself to do something. Well, Preston, I think keep going, keep pushing is a great place to end. It's been a pleasure watching you on this seven-year journey, meeting you way back when in the tech community and seeing where you've landed. And I wish you all the best going forward and look forward to catching up with you again soon. Great, Raj. Thank you very much. And it's been a pleasure to know you over these years. Appreciate you. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please give us a rating and review on iTunes. And you can show your support by sharing our show with a friend or reach out to us on social media where you'll find us under our Nexus PMG handle. If there's a subject or topic you'd like to hear about, send me an email, btu at nexuspmg.com or contact me via our website, nexuspmg.com. And while you're there, you can sign up for our monthly newsletter where we share what we're reading and thinking about in the clean tech, green tech sectors. Bigger Than Us is a Nexus PMG production.